Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi, welcome back to the Neshamas podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We are very honored to have Mushki Rosenfeld with us today. She is she grew up in Ottawa, Canada, and she currently lives in Crown Heights. Uh, wife, mother of two children, and a business owner of a women's modest clothing store here in Crown Heights. Mushki's here to share her story of how she spent four years living with untreated anxiety disorder, which eventually developed into an eating disorder. And she is going to share with us what it was like, what happened, and what, what drove her to discovering what was causing her pain, and what she did and does today to live emotionally healthy and continue to grow. Thank you for joining us, Mushki. You're welcome. So I think we should start with, I think you're, you're familiar with the podcast, you've listened to some of the episodes. Yeah. What encouraged you? What awakened the idea of sharing your story? Um, I think for so long, since since I've recovered, which I would say about 18, 19 years old, I was always told to really keep it to myself. And for some reason, I, I mean, I'm not a quiet, I'm not, I'm more of an extrovert. So it was, it was definitely something I had to just listen to people when they told me that because it's my nature to share and to help so I've always had that bit of an urge to reach out to people like who is going through what I've been through or is really just curious to learn more about, you know, this mental mental health issue. Mm -hmm. So I kept quiet from about 18 to 19 and now I'm 32. So that's that's a, that's a long time and now that I start seeing people in the community come out and be, you know, not be ashamed, it's kind of like a relief to see that shame fall from them as they talk mm. and so i i it's it's inspiring but it's also that it it brings out that need in me to see that god gave me this path not just for me but to to share it with others and to help other people on their journey so yeah it really inspired me well thank so here you I am. yeah we all really appreciate it we appreciate all of the guests that come onto the podcast We've seen many people get help yeah. directly as a result of it. So Perfect. on behalf of all of us, thank you and thank your husband. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a glimpse into what it was like when you were younger sure. and how you noticed things were beginning to build up in regards to anxiety? Okay. I would definitely say I was born with a different way of thinking, a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety, but I, I guess I my generation just was being raised by the past generation that was was 
they were more okay and willing to just push things aside, which worked for a certain amount of decades and years, you know, but I think after a certain amount of time, it, it doesn't work anymore. But as a child, I, I didn't really have the guidance of how to deal with it because of that. Mm. So yeah, I've had it. I've had an anxiety since I was a young child. And then as you, as you get older, obviously it gets worse. And I would say around nine is when the symptoms really started getting pretty bad. And I feel like if people know the signs to look for, then it, the chances of it not developing into something else are a lot, are, are better off, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Can I ask you about, just to enlighten us to anybody who doesn't experience anxiety disorder, somebody not even realizing mm-hmm. that they have it, what was the experience like? Like in the beginning, and what mm-hmm. is getting worse experience? Okay. What are you thinking as it's happening? Sure. Okay, so I think as a young child, before I turned nine, it was really just late nights, constant thoughts, just being overwhelmed with racing thoughts and not really being able to put them together, just trying really hard to figure it out. You would really see me as a young kid, just literally sitting on the couch thinking. And that was like one of my favorite things to do is just because I felt like my mind had so much to say. Mm. I didn't really have the vocabulary to to say what I was thinking, but I would rather really rather just sit there thinking than go play that was just what did you think about that did you think at any point that there was something weird about it well i mean i think people really saw it as lazy they saw it as not you don't want to do anything it's not that i'm dying i'm doing something i'm sitting here and i'm listening to my thought it was it's i mean it i would guess people would look at me and think i'm a weird kid so that also you know i I did get bullied in school So that was also, that added to trauma, which worsened definitely the anxiety. But then it developed, once it started, the symptoms started coming out, it was more very obsessive fear of, it's. I thought when I was nine, I was convinced that I had cancer. I, I would be, I would insist on going to the doctor at least every two weeks, every week, you know, just checking my body for um, signs of skin cancer. And I just, it just, I couldn't, put together how how people live every day not going to the doctor how do they how do you know how do you know if you're sick like it just i couldn't it i couldn't make sense of it and it was just was there like an inner like conviction that there's something wrong with yeah. me and i have to just figure out what it is yeah yeah i just thought i was sick i thought i was dying and it was it lasted for about a year what did that feel like though like it was terrifying i lived in complete utter fear my mother i mean my parents and people, my the elders around me tried to help me, you know, really, like, really did their best and was doing everything they thought possible to help me. And so was I. I was trying to help myself. It just seemed like a, it was a very dark place. And that lasted a, a full year? Yeah. Just that? Yeah. What, like, how did that affect your functionality as a kid, as a student in school, as... It, well, my anxiety itself, even before this, was... I, I was diagnosed with um, a learning disorder and ADHD and ADD. I it was, I was always behind in school. I was not a very good student. It's just my mind wasn't there. It wanted to think about what it wanted to think about, and it didn't really want to focus on anything else. Mm-hmm. So it definitely affected my school, my friendships, my relationships. Did you try? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, but I feel like you're made a certain way, and there's uh, no changing back then, that. I'm saying, yeah. like, what's wrong with me? Yeah, like, yeah. I just... Oh yeah. Everybody else's for sure. Self hatred. Yeah, a lot of that. But eventually, once um, I started hitting puberty, the fear of losing the control of 
what I'm becoming and how I'm growing up and having absolutely no control over that, that it shifted to that fear of doing whatever I could to slow down the process of growing up. I would stop strangers on the street and ask them how old they think I look. And if they said I looked older, my whole day would just be a complete, utter disaster. I would spend, I would just sit in my room and cry. What does staying young represent? I guess I didn't feel like I had a childhood. I didn't feel like I got the chance to be a child. And I didn't think it was fair. What did you miss out from, what did you feel like you're missing out from childhood? The easiness of it, you know, Carefree. the play, the the friendships, the love. I just, mm. I felt like I re- was really robbed of that just from the anxiety and the way I was made. So, yeah, that was, I think that's prob- like thinking, looking back, I, I definitely think that's what it is. I didn't understand it at the time. Right, right. And then eventually the anxiety got so bad that it led, anyone with anxiety will know this, that either you, anxiety can make you eat more or it can make you eat less. So at this point- You're saying if anxiety turns into- uh, So bad, uh, it, it turns physical, right. Saying into an eating disorder, because some people will- Well, at this point it wasn't yet an eating disorder. It was just that I was so stressed out. I was nauseous that I couldn't eat. So yeah. that, I was a big child. I was a big kid. I was overweight growing up. But once the anxiety started making me nauseous, I wasn't able to hold food down. So I started losing weight. And then everywhere I would go, people would give me positive reinforcement and say, wow, Mushki, keep it up, whatever you're doing. Meanwhile, I'm like this 10-year-old kid, 11-year-old kid. I'm not on a diet. I'm just suffering, you know, but apparently I'm doing something right, right? So that would go, that you know, and I would, I'd be really happy. I ended up, I would be happy about losing weight and the positive reinforcement I was getting. But then since that made me happy, it made me want to eat more. So I would gain it back the weight and then the positive reinforcement would stop. And I started picking up on that. So I realized. Why would the positive reinforcement encourage you to eat more? Because I was happy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So when it stopped the positive reinforcement, the happiness left and the anxiety would come back. But then eventually I caught on to the pattern of when people tell me I'm looking thinner and losing weight, then that gives me love. And at that point, I just wanted to do anything in my power to keep that going. So that's when the obsession turned into what can I do to lose one to two pounds a day? Mm. Yeah, at this point I was... 11 or 11, almost 12. Yeah. So you were really young when you noticed that the positive reinforcement was love. And that makes, how how old were you when you noticed that? 11, 12. Yeah. Wow. That's very advanced. Like, I don't know. I don't know about childhood development, but that seems very advanced emotionally, like emotional awareness. Yeah. I would say that, I mean, there's, I mean, there's different types of people. Some people are just book smart. Other people are intellectual. And, you know, my, I, I picked up more on social, you know, like, again, my thoughts just, I, I was very in tune with my thoughts and mm-hmm. my feelings. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. I see a lot, a lot of the people I've talked to that have these different, you know, 
mental illnesses or these things, these struggles are very, yeah, like Chase Taub talks about the idea of the canary in the coal mine. Like we're very, very sensitive Mm. emotionally. So sensitive meaning we can very easily get hurt, Mm. but also we're very sensitive that we can pick up on subtleties that Mm -hmm. other people may not pick up on, whether it's within ourselves or within others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's when you're 12. Can you just explain a little bit more, like what was the progression Mm -hmm. from there? So one thing I just want to make sure I don't do in this talk is mention my any weight or calories or anything, because if someone has an eating disorder and is listening to this, an eating disorder is a very competitive thing. So if they hear the weight that I was at at a certain point or the amount of calories I was consuming at a certain point, they will make sure to beat that in some way. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a way to avoid that, I'm not going to mention any diet that I put myself on or mm. in that aspect, you know. Yeah, but just excessive exercising, the constant taking away of what I was eating at the time because, you know, my body would start to s- slow down trying to hold on to everything the more I lost. So the more I would have to fight that and eat less and less and less. So it really, it's 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 a slippery slope. How would eating less lead to eating less? I didn't understand. Because your body can get used to a certain amount of a, a diet slowly once it sees, okay, this is what I'm getting. So it, it'll, the body is a very interesting thing. Like it protects you in, in so many different ways. So it catches on and it, and it learns, okay, well, this is the amount I'm getting every day now. So I'm not going to give like... I'm going to slow my energy down to the extent where I won't be able to get up and exercise. But an eating disorder does get to a certain extent when when you're running on pure adrenaline. You're not running on energy anymore. You're not running on the daily calories. You're running on just pure adrenaline. So like I said, a slippery slope, the ball just keeps getting faster. Once your body hits starvation, there's, it's kind of goes awire, just goes a little nuts. So over... What amount of time and like, what did it, like, what was the progression? Mm -hmm. What did you experience? Like becoming easier to move around and then putting out all this energy and then eventually did you start like getting weak? So once it started getting really bad, I would notice blackouts numerous times a day. It's just standing up, everything turns black and you lose control. You would fall to the ground or you would... I would fall to the ground or. <sighs> Where did these things happen? These blackouts? At school, at home, people would notice, they'd be worried, but didn't really know what was going on. You know, I stood up too fast, you know. But a lot of the time, the, uh, the blackouts turned into complete fainting, but that the fainting would normally happen. I would exercise alone. So I would do my regular exercise regimen and then wake up from fainting and think to myself, well, where did I let leave off? I have to start again because I forgot where I left off. So that would lead to just more exercise. It got to a point when my body was so cold, it would grow extra hair all around my body just to try to keep me warm. My lips were just constantly blue. A lot of, a lot of starvation symptoms happened. It was, it was pretty frightening. It got to a point when I... What did I, you see when you noticed mm-hmm. those things? Yeah, that's a, that's, a big, that's a good question. I didn't see it. I would look in the mirror and just see someone who needed to lose more weight. Yeah, but it did get to a certain point 
when I did look in the mirror and I did start to notice different things like bones sticking out in weird places and there was a fear. There was a there was a there was a deep fear. When someone is dying, they they start to realize they're dying. You know, there there came a point when I when I thought to myself, I'm going to die, and I don't know how to help me. I didn't know I didn't know what to do to help myself because it like my mind created a life of its own. You just lose complete control. Yeah. Wow, you just really brought me in there. That's crazy. Yeah. Aside for like the fainting, what were the questions that you were asked about what's going on and what do you think was like helpful and Well, one of the one of the signs of people with eating disorders, especially when they're really thin, they do whatever they can to hide the symptoms. So, when I exercise alone, I did that on purpose because I knew people would see me faint. You also start to wear really loose clothing so people don't, I mean, yeah, I wore loose clothing to hide the weight that I was losing. At that point, I I didn't want to get the recognition anymore because it just turned negative, but I didn't know how to control it. I didn't know how to control the the weight loss anymore. Even if I wanted to start eating, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the control to do that. I just, I wouldn't be able to make myself eat think you were seeking on the other side of this pursuit? That's an interesting question. In the beginning, like I said, I was searching for love. But towards the end, it, it like I said, it, it formed its a life of its own. I wasn't searching anything. I just didn't know how to get out. Right. So sometimes it's, tell me if this sounds correct, but it seems like it's, the only way to get out is to go in. Exactly. Or yeah. the only way I know how to not feel this feeling, whatever it is, anxiety. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Is to go into that. Yeah. And a lot of when you go through treatment for an eating disorder, like I learned that to separate what I wanted and what the eating disorder wanted. I wanted love. The eating disorder just wanted me to continue losing weight and eventually die. Right. So eventually my wants didn't matter anymore. My It was all about what my eating disorder wanted. Right. So if somebody were to ask you, you probably would have answered on behalf of or as if you were the Exactly. You start feeling like you are the eating disorder. Hmm. I started feeling like, you know, this is me now. Right. So if someone asks me, are you okay? I say yes, because that's what my eating disorder is telling me to say. Do you need help? No, I do not. You know? That I didn't want to answer that. I didn't want to say that. Did you have but. moments of noticing that, like judging yourself for that? Yeah. I, I remember specifically moments at night when I would talk to my eating disorder and say, but I want to have children one day. Like, I'm not going to be able to have children anymore. And my eating disorder would be like, like that's too bad. Like, this is where you are now, you know? But I, I like I really wanted to just run downstairs to the kitchen and grab a snack, but I just didn't have it in me. Yeah. When were you willing to like how much longer did that last for? And mm-hmm. when were you willing to like try something that you haven't? Like to go out, out. Right, to get help. Yeah. yeah. It got to a point when when I was on a treadmill and my father came into the room and said, can you stop for a second? I want to speak to you. 
So I stopped the treadmill and I remember really trying hard not to faint. I was blacking out, but I was like, just stay focused, you know? And he said, I, I to be honest, this, this whole memory is very vague in my mind because I, I didn't see anything, but I, I remember him saying it's time to go to the hospital. And I just, I broke down crying because I was so thankful. I'm like, mm. thank you, just take me. Like, I just want, I wanted to go. I wanted help at that point. And I needed someone to just tell me what to do, not ask me. I just needed someone to take my hand and take me. So by the time I was in the car at that point, I was completely out in the back seat. I couldn't sit up. I was lying on the back seat and I knew I was dying. It, it got to a point when, when I got to the hospital, the nurses, they couldn't believe I was still alive. How old are you? I was 13. 13? Yeah. And at that time, even that last, let's say, month, you were going to school? Yeah. 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 Sitting there in class all day? I would get looks. People didn't want to look at me. People were scared to look at me. It was it was a dark time. Yeah. Did you notice anybody else? Yeah, I noticed the disgust and people looking at me. Did you notice anybody else that may be going through the same thing that you're going through? Now? Did you today? ever then? No. No. I didn't. I felt completely alone. Wow. Yeah. It's so tragic. Yeah, it was dark, but you know, it's definitely made me a stronger person, a lot more we'll aware. We'll talk of, about that soon. Yeah, I'm just like, it's I, you crazy. Know, yeah. Do you know anything about like how your father knew what to do? They got a lot of phone calls from the school, mm -hmm. a lot. And never would I dream of judging anyone like or my parents you know or my teachers for letting it go on as long as it did because anyone with any any right of mind don't know how to deal with this and it's very easy to judge and be like how could you let this go on for so long you know but you don't know what the mind is going through when you see a child like this like it, it takes a lot to accept that your child is dying because that's the last thing you want to accept. Hmm. Yeah. And the amount of effort and energy you put into making to not be seen. Yeah, exactly. That was also a huge part, a huge part. I was very good at hiding that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What it was like, what was it like when you got to the, the hospital? To the hospital? I remember the nurses whispering to my parents that I have a few hours to live. And my mother to this day will still tell me like only, only when she saw me crawling onto the hospital bed, did she realize what I became. That's like, it's amazing what the mind can do to keep you from seeing what it doesn't want to see. Mm. Yeah. But that night at the hospital was a very long night. It was a balance between keeping my heart pumping and getting the IV into my body. Mm -hmm. It was a very fragile thing to work on a body that was not. So malnourished. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that ended up like 
causing your body like a permanent effect? Today? Yeah. From then? Well, I was told I wasn't able to have children. But I proved that wrong. <laughs> Thank God. You know, I'm a fighter. But to this day, I have terrible circulation. My bones are brittle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing they told me when I was in treatment was that you will never recover, but you will learn how to cope. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Every how day. Do you accept that? It's just, it's, it's a spiritual acceptance. Mm. This is what God gave me to work with. And you really learn, you really, you, you really learn to, to, to work with it. And it becomes a habit. It becomes a way of habit. And it becomes a strength. Exactly. Which is what you're practicing right now. Yeah. Right. I can't believe I just had the nerve to say that to somebody who might be listening and is going mm -hmm. through that. Well, I just want to say apologize. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what, like, what was treat what was treatment? Oh yeah. Treatment was from the age of thirteen to eighteen. Five years. Five years. When I was first admitted to the hospital, I was so willing to get better. I was so happy I was getting help. What was the first it's, week like? like the first week, yeah. The first week was a lot of sleeping. They they could not even the doctor would come in multiple times to try to talk to me, but I would literally just fall asleep on him. I for the first month or two I was I wasn't walking I was in a wheelchair attached to an IV heart monitor and I would be fed through the nose a feeding tube even my mind was malnourished so they couldn't even start therapy or any form uh, form of therapy until I was at least a little bit more nourished but after a while I I did start getting more aware of my surroundings, um, able to have conversations. What about physically? Like when would, when, when were you able to like physically function? Like when were you able to eat food? Like three weeks in, um, a month in. So for three weeks, not, nothing went into your mouth? No, no. It would have been too much of a shock for the body. It's like when someone starves for so long, you have to start really slow mm -hmm. or you're going to shock your body. So it had to start really slow and they knew exactly the proportions to add every day. Mm -hmm. And that, th that kind of thing you can't really monitor with food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then once they told me I could start eating food, I, I was excited because I'm like, oh, like it's not in my control anymore. They're controlling it now. So I don't have to feel guilty. So when I did get my first meal, I thought I would, I would enjoy it. But after the meal, I was overwhelmed with guilt and depression and anxiety and fear. I just went into complete panic. How could I let myself do that? I didn't even know that was coming. It just, just what happened after the meal. And also there's, when you're in the hospital, there are other patients in the hospital that are going through the same thing you are. I think that's one, yeah, so I met, a lot of other girls in the hospital with me at the time going through the same thing. And is this is a special hospital for eating disorders? No, but there was a floor on the hospital. It's a children's hospital. And that's where they put all the girls with the eating disorders, okay. as well as other things. Mm -hmm. So we would talk a lot and got to the point when we were able to go and socialize, we would share our experiences, which in most cases could be very therapeutic mm -hmm. for mental health 
you know, patients. But with girls with eating disorders, it needs to be very monitored because we're very competitive. So can you tell me about that? That that is like the I've never seen I've never it's it's the weirdest thing. It's it's odd. I don't know why. It's just part of the eating disorder. You want to be the best. You want to be the thinnest. You want to be bet the best at everything when it comes to losing weight, being thin, not eating. What does it mean to be the best? Not that I'm the best. Death. In the end, it's always death. The the one. Well, that's he, the outcome. That's the outcome. What are we pursuing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a dark hole. It's just a dark hole. There's there's nothing. You just your eating disorder just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's incredible. Yeah, it's like a monster of itself. Mm-hmm. It really is. So we would we would exchange the clothing we came to the hospital in just to see am I. Are you that thin? Am I that thin? It it got very sick and messy. It was, mm-hmm. and it really, really impacted our our recovery. How long were you in the hospital for? That so hospital. the first time I was in the hospital for three months, and then, I mean, and then that was overnight. And then for the next four months, I was in out in an outpatient program, which I was there every day. I just went home to sleep. So I had my meals there and everything, and that went on for four months. So the first Where time. Where was that? This is all in Canada? Ottawa, Canada, yeah. Yeah. So, and then I would graduate from the program, and then it would take another month for me to be back in the hospital. It was in and out, in and out, in and out. Why in and out of the hospital? Because I feel like, I really feel like the relationships I formed with the girls in the program, just, I couldn't let go of the competitiveness. I couldn't let go of, because when you do get better and you do start eating and you start having a regular life, the eating disorder is constantly talking to you. And unless you have the keys and the the skills to really fight back, there's there's no fight. Like it's just giving back in. So, um, so what what's what gives you the power to fight on the other end? Like even when you're in the program? Well, because you have no other choice. They're forcing you. But once it becomes your choice, the guilt is so overwhelming. Hmm. Yeah. So there's like a surrender when you walk into those doors. Exactly. You're allowing whatever adult or doctor exactly. to tell you what to do. You're just allowing them to make the choice. Yeah. But when it comes to you and you're to make your own choice, mm-hmm. the overwhelming, powerful decision maker is the yeah. eating disorder. Yeah. And I, and I definitely think that eating disorders start off as wanting to be thin. That's definitely the driving force but once it comes to this point when you're in and out of the hospital it's no i mean it is about feeling fat and wanting to be thinner but it, it once you're thin and you know you're thin there's you can't save yourself so it's no longer about being thin it's just about i just feel too much anxiety when it comes to eating and i think once i hit 18 i was no longer able to be in the children's hospital anymore Mm-hmm. I would have to start going to the adult hospital, and that terrified me. Mm-hmm. I also had the freedom at that point to decide what I want in my life. I was no longer in school. I I had friends, you know, in Crown Heights. The girls were going to seminary, you know, and I started for some reason. I I started just feeling like like my life is about to begin, and I can mm-hmm. make my own choices now. Mm-hmm. And 
and I and I wanted to. I don't know. It just came. It just came. Those all those years came to the ending of me wanting to choose life and work on it. I definitely think that a lot of therapy, a lot of the program gave me that. But I did think that certain things that I feel like I learned now um, in my life now that if I if I learned then, it may it may have helped. It may have helped me a little bit more. I'd love to hear what those things are. Mm-hmm. If you can share them with us. But can you tell me a little bit about what it was like during the time while you're going in and out of the hospital and outpatient? Mm-hmm. Did you go to school at all? What was your relationship with your friends? Cousins? I don't know if you have cousins, but yeah. like, what was that like? At first, when I was first admitted in the hospital, all my friends at school would come visit me and you know the school would visit me. But then... After so many years, like relationships dwindle, and I a lot of mo- all my friends were in the hospital. My it really just became a family, like we became family. We be, like those were my friends. Those were oh, my family. I thought you meant all of your friends from school ended oh, up in the God, hospital. Oh God, no, right? no, <laughs> no! All the girls that I was making friends with in the hospital became my friends, and mm-hmm. yeah. So my family, you know, I would I would be home on the weekends, most weekends, when I was outpatient. So that was my, you know, we had that. But school was hard. They had school in the hospital. It was like homeschool, but it was definitely not easy. I had to really work at passing each grade. It was very hard. Yeah. I ended up not graduating high school because it was just too hard to juggle. Yeah. So now we could appreciate more that you're a business owner. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The there's a hospital and then there's an outpatient. Are there two separate things? No, it's the 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 outpatient is in the hospital, so the same building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like a second home for you. Oh yeah, it was like my family. It was also hard to let go because they become family, and a big part of getting better was like letting go of my family that I grew so close to and it bothered me that they it was so easy for them to let go and want me to move on yeah i mean obviously it's their job you know they're just doing their job but for me it was like that you saved me you know Mm. so there was that what do you think are if you can remember any moments of when somebody said something to you and that was like oh it's okay, or like, is there any moments that you can remember like that? You mean in therapy? In therapy or in groups or with any other friends said? Well, I remember one therapist, she was very good. She was my favorite. And we were doing a session and our sessions were interesting because she was a very spiritual, intellectual person. And that's my, that's, that's my vibe, you know? So we would kind of just bounce our ideas off of each other. And then eventually I was just like, so so you mean that like, even if someone is like, has nothing to prove them, prove of themselves and they, they, they're just a nobody, they still have to love themselves. They still have to like themselves because, because they're just a human being. Like, she's like, yeah. I'm like, like it was it, that boggled my mind that like even though I have nothing to prove and nothing to give, like I still have to love myself. It's like yeah, yeah. you do. You know <laughs> that I I mean I think I'm not worthy of love. Yeah, I didn't think I was worthy of it. 
Like, what did I do to deserve love? And that, that was a big turning point for me. It's like, I don't have to do anything to, prove, to achieve love except just live, you know. Just to be. Be a human being, yeah. Recently, somebody asked me, I sat down with him and he said, are you? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's all that matters. Exactly. And to get to that is a lot of work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Constantly. What conclusions did you make about that therapy session? That it doesn't matter what mistakes I make or what choices I make or things I've done or things I haven't done, my body and my my soul still needs to be cared and loved for, if not from anyone but myself. That's like one of the most fundamental messages. Yeah. Universal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not only is it something that we seek, it's something that we deserve, and the person to give it to us is ourselves. Oh, yeah, for sure. What does self-love look for you, look like for you? Maybe then, now, like... It's a constant process. Okay. You know, that was me realizing it. And from that moment on, it was learning how to give that to myself and mm. to constantly remind myself that I do deserve it. Mm. It's not a, it's not a, oh, now I realize it, now it's easy. No, it's a constant reminder and convincing yourself that it's true. But now I'm like 32 years old, you know, I would say my way of self-care would be allowing myself to give myself pleasure and like, like going, get my nails done, going shopping without guilt without feeling like I'm neglecting my family or I don't deserve it or I did nothing to deserve this. No, I'm a human being, so I deserve to have downtime. That in itself is enough, you know, but it is a constant reminder for myself. It's hard for me to allow myself to, yeah. I am enough to deserve. Exactly, exactly. Just me being alive is enough. Yeah. Yeah. And... Can you give me some other ideas of what it was like earlier on, of how, of what self-love looked like in action? Well, I think after that, I just getting up and I, I ended up moving to Crown Heights, find, getting myself an apartment, getting myself a job. At paying, 18, 19? 18, yeah. Finding a friend. Like I let myself be. And like me as a being, I am independent. I am pretty fearless when it comes to jumping into things. Hmm. I just let it be. I let it go. And I let it go without fear. It was really... And the letting go is an expression of love for myself. Exactly. Like it's so incredibly It's powerful. okay to not be scared to do things. It's okay to know what you want and to give that to yourself. It happened pretty quickly for me. I think for so long I was just caged up in a little box being scared of allowing myself to just be, you know, and then accepting that and giving that to myself was a big, a big, wasn't easy, you know, definitely wasn't easy. I, but never for a second did I stop and ask myself if I was doing the right thing. I always knew moving to Carnites and having friends and getting a job at a young age was just what I wanted to do. And, and I, I, I remember the happiness of just 
having friends and a normal life that it brought me, it was pretty magical. So if you moved here, did you already have friends or you made the friends from? I had friends and I made friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I ended up meeting my husband, you know, which was, which was amazing, you know. Definitely grew up together. So. Did the anxiety and, and, and any of that play play a role in, so in dating that's a marriage? One message I think I've, one thing I wanted to bring up today was I feel like if I would have, if I was a nine-year-old in this day and age with the symptoms that I had and people were not taboo on the subject and I was given medicine, I think there could have been a good chance of an eating disorder not in it not developing into something so lethal. Right. And what what do you mean when you say medicine? You're talking about like an anti-anxiety. Anti-anxiety, anti-depression, you know, antidepressant. When I was in the hospital, they gave me I tried many different medications. Finally, one clicked. I've been on it ever since. I'm on What's this, the what were they treating when they were trying different medicines? Anxiety and depression. Anxiety, depression. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, the I've been on the same medicine since I was 16 years old. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's so important to, for us to realize that sometimes the brain is just not, is not making something, is not giving enough of something. And it's really just like diabetes. Like you don't have enough, you know, insulin. Here is insulin. You know, you don't, your brain isn't, you know what I mean? It's, it's really as simple as that. It's just harder to accept because it, it's mental illness. Mm-hmm all in my mind yeah and i try to make sure nobody sees it yeah right does does that tendency of the way you were when you were younger ever play out today where you get lost in your thoughts and you just i'm still very i live in my mind sometimes i have to remind myself to get out of your head you're living in your head you know it's a constant reminder but i'm always thinking that part of me never left Mm -hmm. i've learned to thank god for it and to use it in a way that will serve me and to recognize when it's not serving me. And Can you tell me an, an example of how it's, how it's a strength or how it serves you? Definitely helps me with business. It helps me understand other people. There's a big side, like it's a lot of empathy, really just learning other people and the way other people think and, and what happens when this happens and what happens when that. It's just constant putting you know, the puzzle pieces together. And only the only way you can really figure things out is by constant thought and co- and focus. Mm-hmm. And that I'm able to do just because it interests me so much, mm. you know? So it did lead to a business and being independent, having a family. I saw a uh, little clip from Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. Oh, yeah. And he's interviewed like many years ago and they asked him what he's doing. And he said, he's just obsessed with uh, the customer's experience. Yes, exactly. Right? Exactly. And it seems like that's what you're describing. Like, yeah. Not, I don't know about obsession, but the ability to go into and experience the customer's experience. But I so think sometimes can, the only way to really go into the customer's experience or to really understand something fully is to be a little obsessed. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where obsession comes in. A form of me. Yeah. I mean, not constant obsession, you know, sometimes just momentarily (laughs) obsession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's it like today? Today. What do you do today? I don't know. What are the habits? What are the. Mm -hmm. When it comes to my eating disorder? Yeah. I'm not going to lie. 
after having babies, it was hard losing the weight. I did have some slips and falls along the way, but I was able to catch myself. Slips and falls meaning not even realizing that you're avoiding to eat. Well, it actually, it was a shame for me because I was always, always had this sick proudness of like pride in just being anorexic, just starvation. I never made myself vomit because that's gross, you know, but once after having babies and being a mother and you can't not eat, you need to be, you, you know, you have to eat in front of your kids and be normal. So it did end up leading to bulimia, but I was able to catch it very fast and put it into place and help myself with that. What does that mean? That means speaking to therapists or? Um, yeah, there was therapy, but a lot of it was just reminding myself a lot of the, the tools that I was given and the program that I was in. I'm also now part of ACA, which is adult children of alcoholics. And that that was another thing that I feel like if I was given in the time of being in the program, that would have helped me tremendously. It helps me now as an adult beyond. That was another factor that really mm-hmm. helped me get myself back up. What, what type of support are you getting from there? I don't understand. Okay, so it's groups. I go to right now because of COVID, I'm using it's you you can literally every hour on the dot. There's a there's a phone meeting. I can go from extreme anxiety where it's hard to breathe to just calling the number, being in the group, sharing, listening. And then when I hang up the phone, I can breathe. I could I'm now in my day, my day begins. And without that support, I don't know how I would I would get by on some days. Yeah. I'm just curious to know why that program. And just to, in case anybody doesn't know, I encourage you to look it up. Mm-hmm. I actually have met quite a few people that have joined ACA and had nothing to do with alcohol. Oh, yeah. Right? So I'm just wondering how. Well, what, like, yeah, I mean, it's, well, I feel like a lot of people heard of AA. It's for alcoholics. And when you're an alcoholic, I mean, it's, it's, it's very well known that there's a program for that. But it's it gets a lot harder to know what program to go to when you're not an alcoholic or you're not an addict, you know? I used to go to meetings for being for Al-Anon, for people who's in relationships with addicts. Mm-hmm. But it, it was it was more geared towards people who are married to addicts. So I was never really felt such a connection until I realized a therapist that I see now told me, well, you're more of a child of an alcoholic because even if even if your grandparents were an alcoholic or your brother was an alcoholic, that kind of puts you into the category of this program. Right, meaning you grew up with somebody, grew up in an environment where somebody was out of your control. Exactly. And- out of control, even dysfunction. A lot of people just from dysfunctional families come to this program right. and fit right in. Right. Yeah. I've recently read the, not recently, it's actually probably a year already, the book, The Choice mm-hmm. by Edith Agar. Oh, I don't think I've read that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. It's an incredible book. Okay. It's it's a Holocaust survivor oh, Okay. who she becomes a, a PhD in psychology. She becomes a psychologist and she talks about how she had to develop certain coping mechanisms which helped her and helped her mm-hmm. survive the Holocaust. Wow. The it became an issue when she was still using the same survival skills. Right. In once she was in the free world. Exactly. And I think that would go under the category, yeah. which is I think what you're referring to is this concept of generational trauma. Exactly. Where 
you know, I think about it, my grandparents or great grandparents suffered mm-hmm. in, in, in Russia and they had to keep secrets mm-hmm. because their life depended on it. Exactly. And their children are growing up in their home where nothing is talked about. Exactly. And how do they teach their children to talk about it? You know, say when something's bothering you. Yeah. Right. So scientifically, actually, they've showed that certain generations in the past, their coping mechanism was sweeping it under the rug and it actually worked Mm -hmm. and it actually helped them cope. Mm -hmm. But certain coping mechanisms don't work in every generation. Right. And so there, scientifically, it's proven that our generation, it's not working. And right. that's why you're seeing a lot more people talking about their mental health and going yeah. to therapy and taking medicine. It's because it needs to be spoken about. Right. And that being this, the beginning of the healing is exactly. when somebody is no longer, it's really like the shame that's attached. And that really actually speaks to what we're even trying to do here with the, you know, the Nishamas organization, specifically this podcast, is to slowly strip away the shame that's mm-hmm. always attached to the, you know, the pain that people are experiencing. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any message to a teenager, any message to a parent, to a school teacher who notices something? I think mainly if you, if you see the early signs of anxiety, just remember anxiety is not just anxiety. I hear that a lot. Everyone has anxiety. Well, there are certain signs of anxiety disorders and that that that's usually when it starts developing into something else. So I would say like for people with teachers, parents, if you're noticing really weird patterns or unusual thought processes, catch it before it grows. Yeah, and for people who have already who have developed an eating disorder, try to remember to focus on your own recovery and not the people that you're in recovery with. It's very hard to remember it's not a competition and it's a life and death situation. Right. And it's and to the least just be aware that there mm-hmm. is this concept called competition. Oh and, yeah. It's normal. And it's but normal. Do what you can to nip it in the butt. Yeah. yeah. I think there's one point I would have like I, I would like to talk about mm-hmm. a little bit more, and that is the ACA, which is adults, yeah. children of alcoholics. So in case we didn't mention it earlier, it's it is a twelve step. Yeah. Uh, program. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me like what what was what's what was what was your experience with that? So I'm seeing a therapist now, and I expressed to him how I just I still felt this out of place. I just I never I never feel like I'm I belong specifically anywhere, like my own kind, my own breed, you know. And I you know as a therapist, as my therapist, I shared with him what I was going through. And he said to me, you know, check this out, check this program out, look at the the laundry list it's called. Mm-hmm. And those are the those are the things that people identify with to join the program. And I just remember reading the laundry list and like breathing in like a deep breath and being like, This is where I belong. This is me. Like this is my kind, you know. Right. And the um, only way that would be there is if somebody shared their experience. Exactly. Yeah. So just starting to go to the programs and everyone started to talk about you know, their, their issues and the struggles and their coping mechanisms. Like it's just, it's, it's in a way finding a family again, you know, that's always going to be there because we're all going through it. It's not, it's not like someone whose job is to, you know, you're not paying them. It's a free group. You're all there for each other and it's never going anywhere. So it's a constant support, which I feel like people need when they graduate from programs or graduate from treatment facilities, rehab, 
the concept of it not being there anymore and you being on your own, like, you know, no, people need support. People mm-hmm. need that circle. So, yeah, definitely really important. Aside for the group, the program itself, mm-hmm. the, the steps, yeah. if there's no alcohol, like what, what are you, like, what are you powerless over officially? It's more of like a spiritual awakening, like a spiritual recognition of the way of life. But also, what does that mean? Sorry, I just didn't understand. What do you mean, a spirit? Like just realizing things on a different, like realizing things on a in a different point of view, mm-hmm. but also recognizing your patterns that were passed down to you and how to change that to something else. Is that what you were referring to when you said the idea, like you had a self acceptance from a, you had a spiritual self self acceptance. Mm-hmm of the fact that this is just the way things are and this is the way God created me. Yeah. Is that something that the program supported? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Accepting what is, and that means the good and the bad, you know, and realizing this is just your journey and um, doing what you can to get by and be happy and fulfilled. Yeah, that's a big part of the program. Incredible. Yeah. That's an incredible journey. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at you now and I'm thinking about a 13-year-old girl crawling onto the yeah. hospital bed. Yeah. It's interesting actually going back and recalling all this. It's been a while. But yeah, it's true. I have. It's been a long ride. Wow. Yeah. It's a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for and sharing you your for story. Yeah. And I wish you well and I, I hope you continue to grow and Again, on behalf of all of our listeners and myself and Ashamas and our community, thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at neshamas.org. We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Neshamas podcast. This is Moshe Khanen wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.